Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason fucking Harris, fucking filmmaker, fucking comedian, and let's do a fucking podcast right fucking now. All right. Jason earning us that explicit uh, <laughs> designation right away here. Like, like this film, you know, it would have been a, a PG or PG-13 uh, episode, but uh, got to get those fucks in, baby. There's there's plenty of fucks in this film. In that one scene, that's the only one. That's what I feel like. Are there, do they never say it elsewhere, just in that one scene? I think the whole movie they said would have easily been PG or PG-13, if not for that scene. Fascinating. Well, and you know, definitely make it R-rated because someone said fuck. Because well, that is, I mean, even even now, that's how it that's works. A uh, rough language. Yes, it is. Fuck, fuck, indeed. Uh, in this season of awesome fucking movie year, <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah, we're talking about the films of 1987. And Jason, I feel like for years has been trying to get us to do a Thanksgiving-themed episode. Jason loves the holidays. We've done a lot of Halloween-related episodes and Christmas-related episodes. We haven't done Thanksgiving, in part because there's like virtually no Thanksgiving movies. But this is one of them. It worked out in our schedule. It's, it's holiday time. And so we're talking about planes, trains, and automobiles. I have pushed for Thanksgiving movies on this uh, show, and there are a few other ones out there that I really like. But, uh, you know, if we're going to do one, we might as well do the one that's probably, I'd say probably this and Charlie Brown are the two most well-known Thanksgiving movies, right? Well, and that Charlie Brown is like a 30-minute TV special. It's not even really a movie. Well, Home for the Holidays, Grumpy Old Men, The Ice Storm. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I feel like, though, even this movie, I mean, it takes place at Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving is kind of key to the plot because the idea is that the characters are trying to get home for Thanksgiving. But we don't ever actually see the Thanksgiving dinner itself or the holiday celebration. The movie ends before that even happens. Right. But I think it's the camaraderie and just like at Christmas with what Hughes does for Home Alone, right? It's kind of like the feelings and the vibes and the anticipation of it. I haven't watched Dutch in years, but doesn't Dutch revolve around Thanksgiving? Also another John Hughes written film. I have not seen that one, actually, so I, I can't say. But I mean, John Hughes really is is so focused on this kind of vision of family and suburbia, even in his teen movies, that it's not surprising that he builds these movies around these kinds of holidays a lot. I agree. I think... Uh... I mean, we've talked about John Hughes before, and he's got a very distinct voice, and he's able to, in this one, capture a lot of what he does best, which is building characters, building comedy, and keeping that heart um, throughout. I think I told you this, Josh, like when I had a hot minute in Hollywood and one of my scripts was going around, a lot of people were like, it's funny, but it has heart, like John Hughes. And I'm like, like a John Hughes movie. And I'm like, that's just a great compliment. But um, can you buy it like you would a John Hughes movie? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does. He does always offer that that combination, which which to me is is not always 100% successful. But I feel like in this movie, it mostly does work. Steve Martin and John Candy are the stars of this film as the two very different businessmen trying to get themselves from New York to Chicago at the height of Thanksgiving travel and weather problems and various other problems, taking all these different modes of transportation. At this time, John Hughes was really just known for those teen movies. I mean, we did an episode on 16 Candles and he had written and or directed so many of these teen hits. So this was a departure for him, getting that R rating, Jason, you know, as you're talking about, but also a, a story with no teens in it really and just just adults well yes but that's as a director you know as a writer we know he wrote the national lampoon movies which do have teens but really is revolving around the family dynamic um yeah so yes this is kind of that next uh wave of where hughes might have been going but uh, sadly we don't know because um he wrote more directed just a little more and then died you know, at the age of 59 before we could see what else he was going to do. Right. I mean, although he had essentially retired long before that, so who knows what he would or wouldn't have done. Well, right. Uh, that's true. But there was no streaming when he was uh, alive. And you could see like 
something like that where he could just write uh, even like a family show or something like that. You could see that like streaming would definitely be up the alley of John Hughes, I feel like. Yeah, it could have been. And I think this is one of those movies where it does offer a glimpse into the kind of things that he maybe would have or could have done later in his career if he'd had the opportunity. This movie was a big success. I mean, his teen movies had generally been successful, and this movie did very well also, grossing $49.5 million on its budget of $15 million, and also generally well-regarded by critics. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. And uh, amusingly, in our last episode on Widnell and I, I mentioned that that, uh, Siskel compared the central relationship in that film to the Siskel and Ebert relationship. And I was sort of surprised that they didn't say the same thing in this movie, because you can imagine Siskel and Ebert on a road trip being like planes, trains and automobiles. Right. And uh, in that last episode, I feel like I said that both of them would have been the Marwood character. In this episode, I feel like both of them would have been more like Neil Page, the Steve Martin (laughs) character. I don't see either of them as uh, Dell selling shower curtain rings and singing the Flintstones on bus rides with a hundred other people. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But they did both. I want to ask a question before we do that. Cause mm. we talked, you know, this, like you're talking about what a hit this is. And now like it's become, you know, a tradition for so many people to watch this around Thanksgiving. Do you guys have a movie that you watch, whether um, it's this or something around uh, Halloween or Christmas that you watch every year? I don't really because, I mean, as I'm sure I've said that uh, other than when it comes up like for this podcast or for articles that I write, I am not a person really who watches movies again. So if it's a Halloween or Christmas, I might want to watch a new holiday themed movie, but I don't really have something like that. Yeah, I don't don't really either for the same reason, but I feel like if like there's any movie I've watched the most times on the same calendar day of a year. It's probably home alone. Another John Hughes movie right there. So yeah, I think for me, it's not every year, but it's maybe every other year or every third year. And it's this one home alone, die hard. Those are probably the three and on those Charlie Brown specials. Yeah. And two of those movies, John Hughes movies, as you're saying. So, uh, I mean, he definitely captures that feeling of the holiday season. And when I was reading about uh, John Hughes unrealized projects, if I'm not mistaken, I think he at one point had the rights for a live action Peanuts movie. Yeah, that mm, I wonder how that would have worked out. I'm still skeptical of the whole idea. Like, I don't know how you can make that work in live action, but if you could, maybe he was the one to do it. That's from the Christmas. Never mind. All right. So Roger Ebert, in his review, said the letters in the title of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles roar across the screen like a streamliner, and the movie itself has the same confidence. The movie's a terrific comedy, but it's more than that because eventually Hughes gives the Martin and Candy characters some genuine depth. We begin to understand the dynamics of their relationship and to see that although they may be opposites, they have more in common than they know. This is a funny movie, but also a surprisingly warm and sweet one. I don't know why it's surprising that it's warm and sweet. This is John Hughes, right? Right. I guess maybe it's more from the setup and from the way that those characters interact that you expect it's going to be more of this just like combative comedy. And and it, it is that, but it's less of that than you might imagine. Yeah, Hughes is such an expert of molding scripts. Like, uh, Dell has already annoyed Neil before they even meet, right? By stealing the cab. And, you know, uh, we see that trunk of his. So we get to know the character and then all the stuff with them finally in the airport and on the airplane. So, I mean, it starts off in that way where they're digging themselves out of that hole, which is classic buddy comedy, road trip comedy stuff. And, uh, Hughes really delivers there. I know both, uh, it's, it's said that both Martin and Candy both say this is their favorite movie of theirs. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's a great showcase for both of them, both like in comedy and in that genuine emotion. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I appreciated is that you expect in a movie like this, they're going to 
butt heads. And then, of course, even if it's not that emotional, eventually, of course, they're going to become friends and acknowledge that they like each other and so on. And I liked that, that it kind of comes to a head, even though it happens multiple times. But there's this big confrontation that's like early in the movie when Steve Martin gives this big speech about how annoying Dell is. And it's a very good scene because you can see John Candy plays it really well, where they show on his face and he's just like, sad. You know, he's hearing all this stuff about himself. And you know that like some of it is true. And he knows that it's true. And it's just making him sad that this person that he was trying to become friends with just finds him so annoying. And then Neil also realizes eventually like he's gone too far and he's been too harsh and they kind of make up. And that's in like the first third of the movie. And they still have conflicts. But I feel like it it establishes early on that like, yeah, they're going to be friends and we're not going to pretend that they're not. Yeah, there's definitely an ebb and flow to this over and over again. And, um, you know, Josh, you kind of touched on a point that I wanted to bring up, which is, I think one of the reasons the movie works so well is because they're playing the truth of the scenes and not the joke of the scenes. And that's why the jokes work so well, because they're playing the honesty of them. Right, right. And uh, I I just wanted to add, because you mentioned the sadness of John Candy, right? Like, he's really good at, like, getting you to empathize with him. Right. And I think that's important because Dell is annoying. And I mean, he's meant to be, but you also understand kind of where that comes from. So Richard Schickel in Time Magazine also talked about that kind of mix of sentiment. He said, it is, of course, always a pleasure to watch Martin's steam gauge face register his rising internal pressures and to witness his exquisitely expressed blow-offs. But Candy offers even more insinuating delights. Covering lonely need with empty gab, insecurity with a not entirely trustworthy savvy, he is the most dangerous kind of pest, the type who worms rather than blusters his way into your life. The movie works the same way. For all its broadly farcical air, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles finally seals its bond with the audience in the same way that Martin and Candy seal theirs, with a sly, shy resort to sentiment. Maybe that's just the spirit of the season, but one does not mind indulging it. Right. You never know, but you could see, you know, the way that Steve Martin and Martin Short work together. I mean, you could easily see these two having reteamed had John Candy lived longer and um, creating more comedy magic together. Right. And I mean, I think this movie is so beloved that if, if Candy had live longer, people would have been clamoring for, you know, when is the next Steve Martin, John Candy team up going to happen? I'm glad you didn't say a sequel. Well, that too. But uh, I mean, certainly just in general, just putting them together in, in any way, whether it's a sequel or in something else. There were remakes in development with Will Smith and Kevin Hart and then Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. And please don't do either of them. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, that would not. Because I feel like also what's good about this movie is not necessarily the premise being so unique that we need to redo it. It's the way that Hughes approaches it and the way that the Steve Martin and John Candy act it. Just the idea of what happens in the movie is not all that amazing or original. Right. It's a it's a road trip movie, a mismatched buddy comedy, whatever you want to call it. And Hughes said, you know, he wrote this first draft in three days, which is what John Hughes does, right? Writes a draft in less than a week and then tinkers with it for you know, 20 more drafts. And then the original cut of this was three hours and 45 minutes because, you know, plot changes, improvs, you know, just kind of scenes built into scenes, just letting these guys work. And uh, it's pretty amazing that he was able to get such a coherent piece down to about 90 minutes with that. Yeah. I mean, I think the one, one thing that doesn't really work and that it made more sense to me when I read about the cuts is apparently there was a subplot about Neil's wife not believing that he's really stuck in places and thinking that he's actually like fooling around on her. And and I felt like their relationship was not really very well established. And there are these cuts back to her periodically, like kind of sitting at home and and fretting or whatever, but just in very brief moments. And especially at the end when they reunite and she's like, hugging him and like shedding a tear. And I'm like, they've been away from each other for like three days. And I didn't really feel the emotion of that. And it seems like, you know, that came from the idea of her realizing like, oh, no, he's not cheating on me. He really was hanging out with this weird guy. And the missing subplot there kind of muddles that. 
There was another subplot that I think would have kind of even pushed this further when they're in that motel and the guy comes in to rob them. Originally, that was the pizza delivery guy. John Candy, Dell only tips him like a dollar or two. So the guy comes back later to take the money that he feels he's owed, which I think would have heightened, you know, this whole kind of annoyance uh, factor. Not that they would have known who stole it, but just kind of from an audience uh, standpoint of why that happened. Not to say that a random burglary couldn't take place. Right. That is a sort of a weird scene where all of a sudden this random guy sneaks in their room and takes the money out of their wallets while they're sleeping, and which I feel like is not a typical hotel robbery mode or whatever, but maybe it is. But I mean, it really just is to facilitate the plot so that they're out of cash and it's another obstacle for them to overcome. And this is one of those movies where like me and you just nitpick two things, but it really doesn't matter, right? It's about those two guys and their relationship. And we go along for the ride, no matter what the mode of transportation with them. Indeed. Mm. So uh, finally, critic-wise, Janet Maslin in the New York Times was not a fan, and she had a, I don't know, strange kind of comparison here to the John Hughes teen movies. She said, Mr. Hughes conceives of this film's adult characters as lost adolescents and seems to regard their mature status as a terrible burden that they will, with luck, be able to shed. The real trouble with planes, trains, and automobiles is simpler. There wasn't much of an idea here to begin with. And when Mr. Hughes works with non-teenage characters, he has smaller reserves of colloquial humor upon which to draw. It's harder to have one man complain that traveling with the other is, quote, like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll than it would be to have a teenager deliver that line. None of Mr. Hughes's earlier films have revolved around anything more complicated than prom dates and parent troubles and getting along with schoolmates but they had a texture and authenticity that planes, trains, and automobiles lacks. Yeah, I don't agree with that one. Pretty much the whole way through. I didn't feel like they were in Arrested Development. These are characters who have led full lives. They're both professionals. They both have various family situations. I, don't, I didn't get any of that. And I felt like each of their uh, motivations in pretty much every scene, in every scene, was clear. Yeah, and I also feel like whether you like John Hughes's teen movies or not, that she's mischaracterizing them when she says they're, oh, they're just about these superficial teen things. Like we're saying, he's always trying to do something more and have some seriousness and character depth and say something about family life and suburbia and whatever. And you can argue that it doesn't work or that you don't like it, but it's definitely there. I think that's why people still love those movies as opposed to other teen movies, right? Because there are plenty of funny teen movies, but there aren't uh, ones with emotional depth like you're talking about where I think, especially in The Breakfast Club, you get that. Yeah, I mean, I revisiting some John Hughes stuff, uh, I, I, I have found myself not as enamored necessarily as I was if, as, as a teen with all of these films, but, but I think you're right. And again, I think even if you're not a fan, you, you can't say that he's not aiming for that or that he doesn't add that kind of thing into the movie beyond just silly teenage antics this is better than drill bit taylor probably if that's what you were it making is. john hughes comparisons i wasn't although i have seen drill bit taylor uh in the theater I reviewed that when that he wrote out, that i think right he did yeah. i think that's his fine that's his final credit actually hmm. under i think under a pseudonym as he used right. in a lot of his later films but he did write it so, uh, Jason, I mean, I know this is a beloved movie for you, so I assume you've seen this multiple times. Never seen it still to this <laughs> day. No, I've seen it. I couldn't tell you the first time I saw it. I really don't know. Um, you know, I remember revisiting it a few years ago and I was just like, I need to watch a Thanksgiving movie, but I don't, I don't know. I can't think that that would have been the first time I saw it, but maybe it was. Who's to say, Josh? But uh, I've seen it probably at least three times. And and honestly, like we watched it, you know, this week for the podcast, but you know, if uh, Scarlett wants to watch a Thanksgiving movie, I think I would show this to her like within the, like this year, like I'm happy to watch this again right now. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did not see this and this is another one of these that I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot this season that people watched this movie when they were kids. And even though it's R rated, I mean, other than the swear word, like you said, it's really not like so inappropriate for children. And 
probably had that love for it as a child. And that's not something I have. So I don't have that nostalgia for it. I watched it, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so for the first time, I think just because it was a thing to catch up on that is beloved. And I thought it was fine. And I kind of feel that way now too. I, like I said, I feel like when I've revisited a lot John Hughes stuff for the most part, it doesn't have the same resonance for me that it did maybe when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, this one I might've enjoyed more if it had been like a family holiday staple for my family, but we were watching uh, Christmas story instead. Uh, during Thanksgiving time, you were already watching Christmas movies. I, why not? Yeah. I feel like, I feel like honestly you're joking there, but I feel like that's one of the reasons why there aren't a lot of Thanksgiving movies because by Thanksgiving you start Christmas. Like what is the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving parade? It's Santa Claus shows up. And once you eat your Thanksgiving dinner, you're ready to watch it. Right, or go movie. out to black Friday and buy your Christmas presents. And I get it. Cause even watching this now we're recording in October and I'm like, I shouldn't be watching this till November. It's still Halloween movie season. Right. 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 So, Dave, did you watch this one as a kid? I'm sure I did, but it's been at least 20 plus years since the last time I saw it. And yeah, I mean, I, I loved all these movies of this you know, kind back then, but uh, it's been so long. Uh, and Dave, I feel like, you know, we, we bust your mom's chops for showing you a lot of like uh, movies that aren't appropriate for kids. But I feel like this one would have been and it seems like the type of movie that she would have watched with you. Yeah, she probably recited the uh, the fuck line over and over again. So <laughs> that seems like something she'd do. Yeah. So uh, anything else about the background of this film you want to mention, Jason? I mean, you know, staples, right? From John Hughes, Chicago-based, right? Things like that. Just uh, there are a lot of Easter eggs here uh, for John Hughes fans. Uh, supposedly, when they're on the highway, they pass the uh, Griswolds uh, and just little things like that. So you watch it. You figure it out, Josh. Yeah, they don't they don't live in Shermer, Illinois, even though clearly Neil lives in a, a suburb of some kind, but that's you know where a lot of these John Hughes movies take place in that fictional town. But it is Chicago area. And this I found uh, odd. Uh, they built the house that the pages live in from scratch, and it cost a uh, hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to build. And you barely see that house there. Like I don't know why you couldn't have just used a real house for that. Yeah, the internal, the set. They didn't build an actual house. No, they did. That's what I'm telling you. Like a full, including the exterior? Nah, I don't know. Maybe it was a set. Leave me alone. Let's go back. I assume it was a set. Fine. I mean, <laughs> I can see it costing $100,000 to build a set. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, why not just shoot it in a real house is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. I mean, because Hughes has this very specific idea. I mean, you know, you mentioned the three hour, 45 minute cut. For all we know, there's 30, 40 minutes of scenes inside the house that got cut. But that, you know, maybe Hughes thought were important at the time. And that's why they needed to build that set. And I don't know about a three hour and 45 minute cut. But I, if you were like, hey, there's a two and a half, three hour cut, I'd probably watch it. Mm, I would rather not. But uh, thankfully, I didn't have to. So we'll come back and talk some more of our general thoughts on planes, trains and automobiles. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Thanksgiving episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about John Hughes's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And and Jason, you're a big fan of this film, right? So, uh, you know, what's your favorite thing about it? Hmm. Is it the planes? Is <laughs> it the trains? The trains? <laughs> And I do like that he calls it automobiles because we do get a bus in there. So you you can't get him on the technicality, right? So Right. I feel like it's the cadence of it too. Planes, trains, and cars doesn't sound right. Yeah. I was going to ask Dave if he watched, I think there's a Hallmark movie from last year called Planes, Trains, and Christmas Trees. Have you ever seen that, Dave? <laughs> I haven't, no. But uh, this seems like ripe for that kind of thing. Ugh. Yeah gross yeah i mean you know you could see you could see a version of this where where neil and dell fall in love right Ooh, erotic that sounds fun uh josh yeah. the best thing about this is the chemistry between the two leads and every you know so to say like oh what's the best thing it's tough to say because whenever those two are on screen together like it's great and then there are times i do think it worked out well the times he separated them as i referenced the famous ed mcclurg scene where Steve Martin goes uh, nuts and he gets his comeuppance there. Really famous stuff that works on its own because of the building blocks to get there. So I think the motivations and the kind of reactions that you get all work 
Um, to me, probably the most memorable scene is John Candy doing the mess around in the car, which, you know, that's a, that's another huge staple. And I know you watched Uncle Buck and weren't a fan because you're a, a sad, sad man. But, um, you know, there's that scene in there where they're kind of uh, lip syncing to a different song. And um, I think John Candy just doing the mess around and, and uh, messing around with the car, getting it to catch on fire is probably the most rewatchable scene in this film. And, yeah, and also the, you know, the Steve Martin fuck scene. <laughs> yes. And that is certainly a John Hughes stable. I think of like, uh, what is it? Is it uh, Twist and Shout in Ferris Bueller's yeah. Day Off? Yeah. There's, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the, you know, that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I did watch Uncle Buck on your recommendation and I did not care for it, but I like this more than Uncle Buck, definitely. And, and I feel like it is the relationship. And one of the things I didn't like about Uncle Buck was that I didn't buy into the relationships, especially like the sort of central similar thing, the bond of characters who don't like each other at first and then come around to care about each other. I didn't buy at all in that film. And here I did. And I think one of the things I like about it is like what I was referencing before where it's not just this linear, like they don't like each other, they don't like each other, and then they realize that they do like each other, is that, you know, they're antagonistic and they have that big blow up in the hotel room fairly early in the film. And you see Neil realize like, oh, I was too hard on this guy and I shouldn't have been that mean to him or whatever. And you think, yeah, they actually like each other and they do actually like each other. But at the same time, Neil is still kind of trying to get away from him because I like the idea that it's not just someone is annoying and you don't like them. Sometimes there are people who are annoying and you do like them, but they're still annoying and you still kind of want to get away from them sometimes yeah. if you spend three days with them. And I like that dynamic. Yeah, there's he's trying to get home for Thanksgiving and he's dealt with so much crap, all of which Dell is there for. So he might, yeah, like you said, be a big fan of him, but he might just need to be away from everybody for a while, right? At the same time, when at the diner, he says he's going to go out and just try to get there on his own. Uh, I think Candy really plays that well of how hurt he is without trying to show how hurt he is, you know? And, right. and you keep bringing up this kind of idea, which I think is good, of like they have the blow up, they make up. And there's at least two other, like I just gave that other instance of him trying to get away. And then there's the one after he burns out the car where Neil gets the motel room and Dell is in the burnt out car just talking to marie telling her that he blew it again and you know finally found someone he likes and can hang out with and what does he do but screw it up and then you know that that is a great sequence because you get that and then neil invites him in and there's that great scene with the two actually bonding and enjoying each other's company in the hotel room which is nice because you would think like you know the classic studio note conflict 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 there's no conflict in that scene and they just get along really, really well. And it's a great reprieve from what you've seen. You kind of need that breather to see that there is uh, a real bond between these two. Yeah. And I also like that scene, you know, right before that, where you're, you're saying where he's in the car and he's kind of talking to his uh, dead wife and you get the sense of self-awareness from him when he's like, he knows that he has a tendency to push it too far and try too hard because he's lonely and he wants to make friends. And, you know, part of the reason why the sadness feels genuine, like in that earlier scene with the blow up is because you know that Dell realizes that there's some truth to what Neil is saying about him. And he's sad because people see that in him and, and he can't help it. So, you know, it adds, adds depth to this very basic dynamic. The Dell character is such a people pleaser, right? And he kind of needs those relationships. And um, in the end, when they reveal, you know, that Marie has been dead for eight years and he hasn't been home in all that time, you do get the full kind of scope of just how sad he is and why he's always out on the road and pushing through. And seems like every time he's dealing with, you know, a motel owner or just talking to random people trying to sell them the shower rings, uh, whether they're earrings or not, right? Um, you know, that's when he is able to kind of block out the the pain that he's still dealing with, right? So, yeah, I mean, uh, those emotional depths really make this thing cook. Yeah, I mean, I like that sequence too, where he sells all these people, the shower curtain rings as other things, as earrings or, or even various different things because they're desperate for money and he's got to do what he can. And it shows you that 
right? He's actually really good at his job. He's a really good salesman. He seems like this kind of goofy guy, but when it comes down to it, he can sell the stuff that, I mean, and what he's selling, like shower curtain rings, come on, that's a, a ridiculous, you know, it's like a very, what kind of silly thing can we come up with for our comedy character to be selling? But he's really good at his job. And, and, all the people when he says, oh, I'm going to call my friend at this airline or I, oh, my, my buddy is the manager of this motel. And those people really are, they like him. They're happy to see him. And so he's not just a buffoon. You get the sense that he's actually really good at what he does. I think there are, like I said, all those nice little Easter eggs, like at the diner, there's a group of girls behind them uh, and they're wearing the shower curtain rings as earrings, the little, <laughs> you know, kind of bells and whistles there. It just, it's, it's interesting to watch now because it is sad knowing what happened to John Candy and John Hughes. And you just think of like all the great content that they could have kept doing, right? Content. That's what we want from them. <laughs> Movies, TV. I mean, you could see John Candy just kind of, I mean, he could have owned an HBO show, right? Right. I mean, you just look at what Steve Martin's career was after this and see how John Candy's career could have followed a similar path. And yeah, I mean, watching Uncle Buck with this made me sort of less enamored of John Candy and thinking like, you know, it's tragic that he died young, but maybe part of that has mythologized his talent or whatever. But he is very good in this film. And and Steve Martin too, who I've always liked and and they play off each other really well. And I think that's a that's a big part of it because, you know, I, I'm saying a lot of positive things, but oh like a lot of the comedy for me in this movie doesn't really do much for me. I'm really not a fan of the like kind of cringe comedy um, that that comes out of awkward situations or people's misunderstandings or whatever. And, um, you know, including in things that people really love, it's just not for me at all. And so I don't laugh a lot watching this movie, but I, I did find it pleasant for the most part. And so that's, that's kind of how I feel. And a big part of that is just those, those two performances that, that, that are enjoyable to watch. I mean, other than the scene where they're waking up in the same bed and um, kind of snuggling and John can't, you know, Neil says, uh, you know, where are your hands? And where's your other hand? He says between two pillows and the famous line, those are pillows. Right. And then they play like, Hey, we're, we're big straight macho guys. Right. What, what other cringe comedy moments were you referring to? I mean, I feel like everything in that hotel room, not just the scene where they wake up, but the entire sequence of them in the hotel room, um, you know, oh, before the they go to socks bed and in the sink and stuff. Yeah, like that. all that stuff. And, you know, and even that big speech, which I mentioned as a positive in terms of the storytelling, like I don't really enjoy as comedy per se. So, yeah, to me, it's just kind of uncomfortable. And that's just me. You know, I, I can't stand stuff like Curb Your Enthusiasm or The Office that are beloved and people love. And I just, I hate that stuff. Yeah, and I, and I, and I love that stuff. So um, right. that scene that you're talking about, the, the thing that makes that scene, Josh, is the Dell's reaction. Um, I mean, Neil gives that, you know, eviscerating speech and Steve Martin pulls it off, obviously, because he's a comic genius, right? But John Candy... When he, you know, was looking at him with that sadness and he says, you know, you don't like me. That's fine. I like me. My wife likes me. And it's like really this kind of like he's self-validating while he's saying it. And it, you could see that that kind of, like I said, sadness is the word there. That's what makes that scene tick, I think. Right. Oh, and I, I mean, I completely agree with you on that because otherwise it's just this over the top rant, which which Martin does very well. But yeah, I mean, and I think that shows, like I said, that self-awareness of Dell knowing that like, he's the kind of person that people can find abrasive. And, and I like that because to me, I feel like that's, I mean, I don't know if you know people like that, because I feel like that's a dynamic or a kind of person that's not shown as much in movies where it's like, there's nothing wrong with this person. Like, they're not mean, they're not like stupid, they're, they're not, uh, you know, they, they're not doing bad things or whatever but they're just really annoying and I can't stand to be around them and they haven't wronged me in any way. I just don't want to ever talk to them or be near them. Are you hoping that they do wrong you so you have an excuse to not be by them anymore? I mean, in a way, maybe, right? I mean, and I feel like Dell is that kind of person. And for me, even as a viewer, I was like, no, Dell, like I would not want to spend any time with Dell. Dell is really annoying and remains annoying throughout the film, even as they become friends. And I like that they become friends, but I mean, as a person, I would be like, get the 
fucking guy away from me. It's, a, it's interesting because I think most people probably, like I said, empathize with him and consider the Neil character like, hey, you're being a dick here, right? So, um, but Josh, of course, you empathize with Dick. I did empathize with Neil because he's, he, I mean, look at, they're, they're both, uh, you know, dicked around by circumstance, right? By airlines and bus companies and car rental companies and all this stuff. And like, I don't know, I sympathize with that. If that was me, I uh, would be really upset. That would be rough. That would be rough. I agree with you. Uh, Dave, where do you fall on this, Neil or Dell? <laughs> Probably Neil's side, but, uh, you know. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's tough, though, because, yeah, I mean, it, it's so sweet the way that they, you know, they do enjoy each other's company, even though, like, you know, he is so annoying. Yeah, there's uh, that kind of song that they play over and over in the background, Dave, and I feel like that, you know, I like when movies do that, where they have one piece that kind of keeps the 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 train chugging along here. Yeah. And um, I feel like that really worked in this movie. Yeah, no, that is cool when a, when a movie does that. I'm trying to think of other examples. Like I know I've heard that before where it's like that same song. Well, I guess Groundhog Day, right? The Graduate, Mrs. Robinson, right? Sure. Things like yeah. that. Yeah. Josh, you know, another thing that I, I think we got to talk about with Hughes is like he, he really crafts these like one scene characters for the most part. Like they, they're, they're the rocket boosters, right? Like the Edie McClurg and um, you know, they all have their say maybe other than the Michael McKeon character. Right. But um, you know, he's able to elevate the comedy with like the Dylan Bakers and the stuff like that. And um, he, in all of his movies, he's always able to find great supporting roles for people. Yeah. And especially this kind of film where it's this road trip. So they're really not, I mean, they're encountering people and then they leave them behind. And so they're all these one scene characters, uh, Kevin Bacon and his like wordless cameo is the guy in New York who steals the cab or Larry Hankin is the weird cab driver in Wichita yeah. with his, what is his name? Like Oog Doobie, or Doobie, Doobie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Doobie, the cab driver. Like, where did he come from? How did they end up in his cab or whatever? That's all blinged out and everything. But, um, yeah, it's amusing. I mean, Dylan Baker playing the kind of character you do not expect from like current Dylan Baker at all as that weird hillbilly character who picks them up oh, in his and, pickup truck. Yeah, that's uh, I think Dylan Baker's first movie role. The interesting Kevin Kevin Bacon and Larry Hankin, obviously, uh, they're both in uh, She's Having a Baby. And uh, even though this came out before She's Having a Baby, when Neil's wife is... Uh, when they're on the phone and Neil's wife is watching TV, she's watching a scene from she's having a baby. Huh? So did they, did they shoot that movie before this, but then it came out afterwards? I think they maybe shot it afterwards and he put it in in post. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a little self-referential thing. Well, that's right. I mean, he does a there. lot of that stuff, right? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, I wanted to go back to the music though, Jason, because I mean, the, some of the songs like that mess around scene that you're talking about are, are good, but the score for this movie is awful. And Ooh, taking it to Ira Newborn. It really is. And it also, there's this little like motif where it's like, it's got this kind of like record scratchy thing going on. <laughs> and it's just, it really feels like some composer in 1987, like, what are the cool hip kids like in their music these days? What about that hippity hoppity music? Let's get some record scratches in here. And it sounds so dated and it's so annoying and it's like loud and abrasive. And I just really didn't like it. Interesting because Hughes, as we know, was kind of uh, such a big proponent of like new wave and like really cool, like post-punk stuff in the eighties. Um, and I think we get Dave Wakeling in here, or maybe that's, she's having a baby. I'm not even, I'm running them together, but yeah, that is interesting because I think, you know, you think of pretty in pink or something and the music is so essential, even though that's when he wrote and did direct. So, um, uh, yeah, sure. There's like a there's like a remix in the credits too, where like sound clips from Dell. Yeah, that like a, that's Dell Griffin. Yeah, that's eighties. That's eighties horrific. I agree. Yeah, yeah. that's the, that's the thing I was gonna say is that like it, it, the score didn't bother me per se. Like it bothered Josh, but like it is extremely dated sounding. And I feel like there's some dated stuff like synthy soundtracks from like 
you know, or stuff from like uh, Vangelis or or Goblin in like Giallo movies. Tangerine or whatever. Dream. Tangerine Dream. Yeah, exactly. All that stuff I really like, and it is super dated, but in a good way. And I feel like this was just in a really uh, unpleasant. Yeah. Sometimes, mm. like you know, I watched Thief for the first time this year, the Michael Mann movie, and like that's Tangerine Dream at it at their best. And I'm like, that sounds like that could come out today and it would still be fresh. Right. So, you know, it's a fine line to walk there um, on this, but maybe that helps add to how effective it is when, you know, he does something like the mess around. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, the contrast is fine. I just wish that the the score itself wasn't so annoying. That mess around scene looked like it would just be so much fun to shoot, to watch, to perform in. Um, And, um, you know, that would have been an easy one for John Candy to go overboard with. But I think he goes to the right amount of like you could see a guy doing this in the car in a crazy uh, haggard state. But he's not again, he's playing it in a grounded way. Right, right. What do you think about the the weird moment where they're about to crash when they're driving on the wrong side of the road and they suddenly see like weird surreal versions of each other i'm glad that you brought that up because um i marked that down too because it is out of place here right and we've seen that in other hughes movies um and she's having a baby there's tons of stuff like that so um but i didn't i didn't think it fit in this one i guess you could say you know the idea of like you know we're about to die so is it life flashing before our eyes or just some strange moment i you could get away with it but yeah that was um that that's a little uh, out of sync there. Yeah, it's weird, and I I noted it again. I mean, it, it's it's jarring to see in the movie itself, and then I noted it again because I was watching the Siskel and Ebert segment, and they use that as one of the clips that they show in the segment. But that that surreal bit is is cut for some reason, and Siskel complains. He's like, "Why did the studio send us this clip and they leave it out? And this is what's in the movie, and they're really doing a disservice to their own movie by leaving this out." And he he thought that this was like an essential element of the scene. Hmm, maybe it is. Maybe we're the ones who are missing things. I don't know. I mean, it didn't. It's it's so brief that it didn't necessarily bother me, but it, it does feel very like jarring where all of a sudden you're like what 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 is this what is happening here because there's nothing like that i mean i haven't seen she's having a baby but it sounds like you know if that's a pervasive thing with these surreal bits or fantasy bits that's one thing but it never happens either prior to or following that one scene i I agree with you it's out of sync um yeah totally doesn't make sense to me another thing that doesn't make sense i wanted to touch on this in the in the music josh um it ends with uh a cover of Every Time You Go, right? Uh, the Paul Young song, you know? Mm. Every time you go. That song, Josh. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I can keep singing it if you're not sure what song I'm referring please, to. Please Josh. don't. But it's so strange to me because Paul Young approved his version. John Hughes wanted it. And then the music studio, the, whoever was, you know, his publishing house wouldn't approve this version of the song being in the John Hughes movie. And it's so strange because it's like John Hughes has a track record. The artist wants it in there. Like this can only be good for everybody. Why wouldn't they give him the rights to this song? I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know. And like you said, it's not like John Hughes is an unknown quantity. And part of what he's known for in all those teen movies is really showcasing that that like new wave music. So who knows? But I feel like there's there's short-sighted uh, examples of things like that in, in so many different films where some song could have been in it or a different version. And, and sometimes what happens is, is because of that short-sightedness, like some other song is in it and becomes a huge hit and is indelibly associated with the film. And that's not really the case here, but I, I feel like that has happened in other places. Yeah. Uh, Josh, how about some alternative casting? All right, let's hear it. All right. So for Neil, it was Tom Hanks and Rick Moranis. I think both of them would have been really good. And I also think Rick Moranis could have played Dell really well. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. And then for Dell, John Travolta, that's a no. Oof, yeah. John Goodman, that's a yes. Yeah. I Dudley so. Moore, maybe? Yeah, I don't know about that. Bill Murray's a yes. And then uh, Robin Williams, I'm going maybe. Yeah, I mean, Candy really does because he has, we as we keep saying, that mix of the the like sadness and the comedy. And I feel like that's not something that everyone can really pull off. And I think Steve Martin, as much as like someone like Tom Hanks could have been good in that role, I think what's great 
there is that Steve Martin, he's not just like an everyman kind of, which is what we would think of for Tom Hanks, but he really, he does have that kind of cynical edge to him. And, and that really works. And that's something that Steve Martin has. I think that works, but he's not like a jerk. I mean, no pun intended for a Steve Martin <laughs> movie, right? Um, right. But he, you know, dude, anybody who goes through something like this on any trip, especially trying to get home for a family holiday, I, I would be so frazzled dealing with this stuff. Right. And that's what that was what I was kind of saying earlier. But yeah, you're right. We see him in the beginning and he's in this like corporate boardroom. And, you know, this is kind of shorthand for like, oh, this is some sort of, you know, uptight suit wearing dickhead or whatever. And he's not. I mean, yeah, he works this corporate job, but that's not just who the character is. And just like Dell, he has nuances beyond the stereotype of what we think of for a character like that. Yeah. You know, Josh, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about how, how to place that kind of surreal moment is. There is one other example of that when they're in the Wichita airport and uh, all the flights get canceled and they, you know, when it goes on the destination board, it just flips to nowhere. Yeah. And that's a very like small background detail that you have to look for if you don't, you could easily miss. But I feel like that other moment with the the devil and the skeleton or whatever, like it's unmissable. That is that is true. So should we rate this out of five uh, planes, trains, and or automobiles? <laughs> there, there you go. Five uh, vehicles or modes of transportation. Yeah. It gets four from me. It has uh, always remained at four, and that's where it will stay. I give it three. Uh, one, one each of a plane, a train and an automobile, mm. I guess, you know, it's, it's, I can see why it's beloved. I don't love it, but there's a lot here to appreciate. So that's kind of how it lands for me. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three and a half right in the middle. Maybe that's a bicycle or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm surprised they don't end up on that or like, like a tricycle, right? They'd have to yeah, sure. go the last little bit of the trip. Uh, on the Double deckers, double decker bicycle, or, you know, a two seater, right? Or something. A tandem. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Missed opportunity. That'll be in the double season. decker. That'd be a strange bicycle. Yeah. I don't know how <laughs> that would work. I don't think that's possible. Someone we're going to build it now. Yeah. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of planes, trains, and automobiles. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special Thanksgiving episode of our season on the films of 1987. We're talking about John Hughes's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And uh, we've talked about John Hughes and his legacy uh, a couple times already. We did an episode on 16 Candles, as well as on uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which he wrote but did not direct. And, you know, as we're talking about earlier, he sadly died at a young age. And even before that, though, you know, he had basically retired. He directed a, a few more movies after this. She's having a baby that you were talking about, an Uncle Buck that I watched, and then Curly Sue, and then kind of became almost like this recluse and wrote scripts and sort of sent them out, but didn't really have his association with them. And you wonder uh, what would have happened. Like I said earlier, you know, I still think that there would have been Amazon could have backed up the money truck and said, just make a high school series and somewhere you want in Chicago or whatever he was into. He was such a powerful force in Hollywood. I mean, you look at just the movies he wrote and how quickly he turned stuff around. Like there was no, if he wanted to retire and just be retired, he could have done that obviously. But I think that there would have been some type of John Hughes renaissance for this. Yeah, I mean, and the 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 way that his work has become even more beloved and influential, I mean, even since he died, you know, he lived until 2009, so he certainly would have seen a lot of that resurgence in his lifetime. But even since then, I feel like it's been even more of that. And especially in this era where anything that's like recognizable or well-known is these, you know, studios and streamers are desperate for it. To be able to put John Hughes's name on something, absolutely, somebody would have been desperate for it. It's that. just crazy because, you know, Dave said he watches Home Alone every year, right? Or close to it, right? And we think of this and those teen movies, like, it's just amazing. And the vacation movies, right? How many iconic things that he put together. And then you're like, oh, okay, he also wrote like stuff like Beethoven, right? And it's like Beethoven, whatever. But then you're like, oh, there were five Beethoven movies, right? Like, right. he was a hit machine. I've seen every movie he's directed, Josh. I can rank them. 
Okay. I have, I have not. And, uh, although I did watch uncle buck again, you know, or not again for the first time and I'd rank that low, I think. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think that's about four. It goes, do you want the rankings, Josh? So. I mean, you clearly want to give them, so let's hear them. Okay. Seven to one or one to seven. Whatever you want. Best is Ferris Bueller. I'd say Ferris Bueller's. Yeah. Day that's my favorite too. Although I'm, I'm like wary of revisiting it now. Cause I've had very mixed reactions to his films as an adult. Yeah. I watched it a few years ago. It still holds up to me. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is number two. I think Breakfast Club is number three, the the quintessential teen angst film, right? I have uh, Uncle Buck at number four. Then I have 16 Candles at number five. Number six, Weird Science. I don't like that one, a little too mm. wacky. And then yeah. Curly Sue, just uh, not my favorite. That's uh, after that. And uh, oh, actually, I got to put... Uh, She's having a baby and then Curly Sue. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen She's Having a Baby or Curly Sue, and it doesn't seem like I really need to see those. You have to, Josh. You have to watch all of those. No, it's it's probably not. I mean, She's Having a Baby has some really good stuff in it, but I think that the issue is like those tonal shifts, which we're kind of talking about here, they really don't work for... um, for that movie at all, especially in the third act, it gets very serious. And you're like, this was just very farcical. What happened here? Yeah. I mean, it seems like maybe another thing that could have happened if he had, you know, stuck around is that maybe he could have ended up writing or, and or directing some, you know, straight dramas at some point. Cause he was moving toward that territory and that never ended up happening. Yeah. I think you're right, Josh. So as we said, John Candy sadly also died very young, even younger in 1994 at age 43, but I mean, was a huge comedy powerhouse in the 80s and and, and early 90s. And I mean, even though revisiting some of this stuff now or seeing it for the first time, I was less enamored of him. I remember like as a kid, I was a huge John Candy fan, including some lesser known John Candy films that I probably would not enjoy now. Stuff like Only the Lonely, speaking of, uh, you know, Chris Columbus, who we talked about earlier this season, or uh, delirious and who's Harry Crumb and I feel like I watched all those movies as a kid and uh, and like them and they're probably not good movies. I'd like to see them uh, a few of those again. John Hughes wrote Only the Lonely, or he produced it. Yeah, he produced Only the Lonely. Um, I think you know we talked about John Candy a little on our Blues Brothers episodes. He's got two Emmys for writing for SCTV Network ninety, but um, Camp Candy was great when we were growing up too. His cartoon show. Yeah, I don't know if I watched that, but I did love the movies for whatever reason. The Great Outdoors, which I think is a John Hughes uh, screenplay with John Candy and uh, is it uh, Dan Aykroyd yeah. or Chevy Chase who's in that one? Yeah, yeah, and that's that. It's Dan Aykroyd, but this that's that class of like the '80s. You know, I read that book Wild and Crazy Guys about uh, all those le- '80s leading comedy men, and you know, Martin and Candy were both in Little Shop of Horrors. I'd say. Um, Canadian Bacon, that's a, with Rick Moranis also, that's a great underrated uh, uh, John Candy movie. Yeah, that's Michael Moore's only uh, narrative film. And that that was at the end of Candy's career in like 1995. And I feel like I definitely saw that like as a teenager. And I feel like by that point, I was more cynical. And it was like, this does not work. I don't know if that's John Candy's fault or it's probably more Michael Moore's fault. But I, mean, I don't know how I would feel revisiting it. But that that isn't one that I have very fond memories of. I do love Spaceballs, which I'm sure we've talked about multiple times in our Mel Brooks episodes, but uh, John Candy great as Mog, the half man, half dog, right. is his own best friend. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was mistaken. It's, uh, it's Dan Aykroyd I was probably thinking of in Canadian Bacon, not Rick Moranis. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. I mean, uh, both of them are Canadian, though, so it's a fair thing to mix up, I think. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Steve Martin having quite a uh, great third act right now with only murders in the building. This season was very funny. Um, I marked down this run he went on from here. uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Parenthood, My Blue Heaven, L.A. Story, Father of the Bride. Like, can't be a bigger movie star than that, dude. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. amazing. And I mean, we just mentioned LA story in our last episode because Richard E. Grant is also in it. And I haven't seen that in a long time, but that was one of my like absolute favorites, weirdly, when I was like a kid and a teenager, more so than some of those other Steve Martin classics. And uh, that's one that he wrote as well as starred in. And, uh, you know, he's been a writer, written plays. And uh, there was a movie of his play Shop Girl with Claire Danes, which I remember quite liking as well. 
So such a multi-talented guy. Uh, his plays are good. His book, Born Standing Up, was the impetus for me to go on my first stand-up comedy tour because I was here and I read that book in like two days and I was like, I got to get on the road. And uh, that kind of created a whole college tour for me, that, uh, that kind of motivation there. So I do have his uh, new book. Uh, number one is Walking My Life in the Movies and Other Diversions, but I haven't read it yet. Nice. And you've seen him uh, live in his uh, tours with Martin Short before. I did see him with Martin Short. I think that's worth a revisit for me. That one didn't knock me out, but I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't in the right uh, mood that night because I can't see those two missing. Yeah, I I haven't seen that, but I did see uh, his uh, musical uh, performance with, uh, you know, his bluegrass uh, stuff that he does where he plays the banjo with the uh, Steep Canyon Rangers, I think is the name of the band that he plays with. And I saw them at the Stagecoach Festival, which is a country music festival one year. So random to be in a tent at a country music festival and suddenly there's Steve Martin playing the banjo. And he probably loves that. I mean, I, I've seen him play uh, with them as well. They're they're fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun, definitely. So, um, you know, the other, I guess the only other major um, actor, you know, or major part in this film is Layla Robbins as Neil's wife, which, as we said, was cut down uh, a lot. And she's a, a busy character actor, uh, was recently on the final season of The Walking Dead, I guess, in a main role, but has done a lot of supporting work. And, you know, I mean, so many of those people that we mentioned, like Dylan Baker and Michael McKeon and Edie McClurg, who show up in small roles just for like one moment, but really add something, you know, all of these great comedy actors there. Right. And Edie McClurg, who we know was also in Ferris Bueller, Larry Hankin, who was in Home Alone, and uh, she's having a baby, right? So like he reuses a lot of these character actors uh, effectively. Right. Yeah. And this movie, you know, the other legacy is just how beloved it is. Even, you know, among celebrities, I sent you guys the clip of Emma Stone on on Jimmy Kimmel, just from memory, reciting that fuck monologue, which, uh, you know, is clearly something that that she's, uh, you know, said over and over again. And so, you know, just the the amount of affection that people have for this just keeps growing, I think. Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned all these character actors, like you could go through the list and each one of them has a storied career. So I think it just was, you know, a great script and great casting and we know the results. Yeah, we do. So uh, the result is it was an awesome movie year podcast episode and that's what's important. But speaking of that, you know, this season we've done The Princess Bride with Nail and I and now Planes, Trains and Automobiles, which I think all three you would consider of the most quotable films ever made. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, these movies are incredibly quotable. And, uh, you know, whether whatever my opinion or anyone's opinion on them, whether you like them or not, the the quotability of the lines, I think, can't be denied. And this one, like, you know, those two, uh, whether whatever you think, uh, so easy to rewatch. I think this is, um, you know, there's a reason that you watch it every Thanksgiving, not just because it's Thanksgiving movie, because it's such a fun experience. Yeah. So that is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, befriend us on uh, online and on social media. Share some Thanksgiving love and joy with us on all the socials. AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on... Anyway, we're, uh, I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on all the socials. Go for Jason is the uh, letterboxed. And since we're talking about holidays, Josh, I, uh, starting in December, will be acting in Majestic Rep's Christmas Carol for some more holiday cheer. That is wonderful. You can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com and at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook. I'm also at Signal Bleed on the thing that Jason didn't want to name, Twitter or X, whatever. At Signal Bleed on Blue Sky, trying to get away from Twitter or X and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And if you're on Letterboxd and review uh, any of the movies we talk about, tag Awesome Movie Year and we'd love to see what you think about movies that we talk about. And you can check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And speaking of Thanksgiving special episodes, the same week that this goes up, Jason will be on my live episode on Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. Sure to be a Thanksgiving tradition for everybody. I mean, I've already named about three other Thanksgiving movies, so this is going to be a tough one. 
It says, yeah. you think planes, trains, and automobiles is going to be a puzzle piece for Thanksgiving? There's, I hope so. There's got to be a few of the Thanksgiving movies that are, right? So yeah. maybe the ice storm. I look forward to hearing that discussion on that episode. And uh, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, it's the audience choice episode. And uh, we just threw hammers this year. It's all big, classic, iconic movies. Uh, the choices were Lethal Weapon, RoboCop, and Predator. And you guys chose RoboCop, probably because of RoboCop's appearances in World Championship Wrestling in the early 90s. I mean, obviously, that's the reason. So tune in next time for RoboCop. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.